Revelation 18, because we've got quite a passage in front of us today. And just a reminder of who holds us is a precious thing to remember. So let's go there. Revelation chapter 18. We have come quite a long ways through this book. The goal was to do one chapter each week. That was kind of messed up. Um, We're close. We're about four weeks off of the number. So it's not too bad. We're, We're making good progress. And if you see chapter 18, you realize there's 22 chapters. And we're getting very close to the end of what we need to study here. And I want to tell you, next week is great news. It's been several weeks. I told you just put your seatbelt on. This is going to be one of the toughest chapters we've ever had to walk through together. And I'm going to say it one more time. This week is going to be a tough chapter to walk through together. But the great news is chapter 19. And it's right on the horizon. You have to wait till next week because we've got to do chapter 18 today. And so join me there. I came up with the title for this message. I call it More of the Same. (laughs) All right, More of the Same. Now, that may not be perceived by you to be very encouraging. There are things in this world that I feel it and you feel it. You say More of the Same. Where do you want to begin? You want to talk politics? No, we won't talk politics. We want to talk about the virus? No, we don't want to talk about the virus. We want to talk about social concerns? No, I don't think we will. What hasn't become more of the same? We've seen so much more of the same. In my view, just a side note here before we start, this relentless, Wind of opposition. I don't know if you feel it that way. It's on the mind and it's on the soul of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. It has hit hard in a lot of a lot of ways. I, I have a pastoral friend who asked for prayer that half his congregation has the virus or is quarantined for it right now. And uh, that weighs heavy on them. And what they can do and, and how they can minister, it's tough. How often it's said that we're living in difficult days. Here in Oklahoma, we have a large percentage of trees that are bent toward the north. Have you noticed that? Is it because they have a magnetic field in them that aims to the North Pole? Or is it something about a wind that pushes and pushes and pushes? as they are developing until this bentness seems rather natural that they face that way. You've seen it. When we look at the things that we're going to look at here in the book of Revelation, it might sound almost like each chapter, pastor is repeating himself. And it's because this is a relentless picture from chapter number 12 all the way through chapter number 18 of what sin would like to do if it can have rain and what it would look like. Man, it's not pretty, is it? It is not pretty. 
We've been looking especially, chapters 12 through 15, there's a lot of signs in there that we walk through. The, the big picture of Satan's relentless desire to attempt to destroy God's plan, especially for Israel. That was highlighted in those chapters as well. And I keep insisting that we keep to the context so that we can understand this accurately. And we're studying the events of the tribulation period. And when we get to chapter 18, by now you've gotten a whole bunch of this described to you. And I just want to ask one question. Anybody here want to go? No? Good. I don't know why anybody would. This is not pretty. This is tough stuff to walk through and study and look at. And, and what you're actually seeing is heaven's view of it and the judgments that will come. Chapters 4 through 19, the vast majority of this book explains a history that is coming. It is coming. And it is an ugly thing. Sin is an ugly thing. And God is not quiet about his hatred for sin. He is not quiet. If there were only a couple of major topics, there's a lot of topics, but if there were only a couple of major topics in Scripture, it would be the sin of mankind and the Savior Jesus Christ. One is committed to kill you, and the other is committed to save you. And we know the end of the story, don't we? We're going to look at this. Because if sin were an athlete, the sin that we view in chapters 17 and 18, where we are today, it's operating on a performance-enhancing drug. It's pretty tough stuff. How about if we pray about this before we start? Heavenly Father, with your word open in front of us, we want to know it well, that we might live, truly live in difficult days, live in our faith, live in our confidence, who you are, what you've done for us, that we might have the joy that comes from knowing you, that hope anchored well within us, that we might not only live it well, but be able to share it. For our world desperately needs to hear the message of truth. And I pray, Lord, that you build us up with it today. Help us again as we open up your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. In a word of adjectives, there are degrees, you know. We call them uh, words like big, and then bigger, and then biggest. Good, you're doing well. What is that last one called, technically? What kind of adjective is that? It's a superlative. A superlative. It's the biggest of the three. It's the greatest of the three. Super is part of that word, isn't it? So what you have seen so far is ugly to uglier. I hate to tell you this. We're at the superlative now. Ugliest. Ugliest. Now, I want to set the table for you here this morning. If that doesn't do enough for you just to make you nervous about what we're going to do. Um, 
I want to set the table for you this way and say that I believe chapters 17 and 18 are about the same thing. And I'm going to explain that as I go, especially in a minute. But it's not uncommon for chapter 17 to be taught as if the identity of Babylon, in which we saw that in chapter 17, the identity of Babylon is religious in nature in chapter 17. And it re- represents some sort of a worldwide, I'm going to say church, put it in brackets, because it's not a real church. It's not the true church. Uh, but it is some sort of, the words they use is some sort of ecumenical, that's kind of mix them all in a pot kind of idea and let them all operate together. Ecumenical grouping uh, by nature. It's under the umbrella of some sort of organization. Uh, generally, we label that as the, the operations of the false prophet. And we say that uh, that's an operation uh, in chapter 17, and it's destroyed in chapter 17. Um, many have taught over the years, and matter of fact, for some 500 years at least, that the identity of the Babylon of chapter 17 might be the Catholic Church and the false prophet is the Pope. You'll find that in a lot of old literature, especially. Uh, some have thought maybe it's Islamic in nature and some thought that it might just be the modern church movement that we've witnessed for the last 20 years and where is that going to go? And some people said that's what it might be too. Um, but they say that it's going to be a false church and it will be destroyed by the Antichrist at the three and a half year period of the tribulation. That's when he enters into the temple and he sits down and proclaims himself to be God. And then they say chapter number 18 is about a commercial Babylon that, that is destroyed at the end of the tribulation. Now, we walked through chapter 17 last week, and technically I didn't see any religious connotation to it. I saw a quest for power. I saw control of kings and countries and things of that nature. And it all seemed to be more political in nature than anything else. I'm not saying it's politics. I'm just saying that I'm not going to be quick to identify the characters of chapter 17 as church things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put off on that uh, because simple thing is this. The lead candidates of our day in reading that text may not be the same candidates for 10 years from now or 50 years from now or if the Lord should tarry 100 years from now. Things change. And so often we we interpret according to the newspaper. And I don't want to do that. Somebody gave me this quote, and I, I wrote it down so I don't forget it. And it's simply this. Ultimately, the ones who will experience this will know it best. And they will. So, what I'm saying is, what I'm going to present to you today is that chapter 18 is a continuation of the description of the sinfulness of not only the big system of the tribulation, the evil that's set up by the Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, but there is a link between these two chapters. Okay? That's what I want to show you. 
there's a comparison here, and you're going to have to do some flipping back and forth between the two chapters, and mine is one page and another page, so it's not too bad. It's good exercise, but we're going to go back and forth, and I'm going to show you something real simple. I think it's the same thing they're describing. All right? Let me show you. Uh, we're going to say it this way. It might be describing the same person. It might be describing something bigger than a person. In chapter 17, this thing called Babylon is labeled as a woman in picture riding on a beast, right? In chapter 18, it's identified more like a city. Okay? You say, well, those don't sound an awful lot alike. A woman here, a city there. Where did the transition come? What, what is happening here? Just follow with me in chapter 18, first of all. Verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Not a vacation destination. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Okay, you say, okay, this is not a pretty picture at all. That is true. What did we remember from chapter 17? Watch for the same words. Chapter 17, start with verse 1. Let's flip it back there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgments of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Sound like verse 3 we just read in chapter 18? Very similar phrases. Let me add another one. From verse 2... Verse 2 in chapter 18, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Back up to chapter 17, verse 5. And on her forehead, the name was written a mystery. Babylon, what? The great. Now that's pretty similar, isn't it? Same terms in comparison the two. Now I'm going backwards on purpose. Chapter 18, verse 1. 18, verse 1. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. I'll go back to chapter 17 and verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. You see similarities there? Matter of fact, even her description is going to be used again about the gold and the stones and the pearls before we're done. 
chapter 18 adds a warning passage that chapter 17 didn't. A warning passage to those who will experience this. In chapter 18, verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Now, you don't probably know anybody who wants to be in there and experience this. I know you don't want to be there because nobody raised their hand when I asked if you wanted to go through this. But it does not, doesn't it remind you of another place in the scriptures where somebody was told, get out of there, I'm going to destroy it? You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's way back in Genesis, isn't it? Two of the five cities were called Sodom and Gomorrah. There were more cities destroyed than just those two. And it was Lot and his family that was told, leave. Leave. They had to be drugged out of that place. And you know how the story went, especially with his wife. She didn't get very far, and she turned around when he said, don't look back. Interesting. God is not quiet about his condemnation of sin and the appeal, the appeal, come out, come out, come out. Last week I, I mentioned these judgments, and they're hard to view in this book, I know. But it reminds us of something about the character of our God, doesn't it? When we read passages like this, most people cringe, say, boy, I, I, I wish, Pastor, you'd give me a happy verse today. You know, let's go into some other passage where we can have a good time and enjoy something exciting and uplifting. And yet when I read terrible things like this, it reminds me, my God is sovereign. It reminds me about my God, how, how He's in control. It reminds me that my God is trustworthy. He always keeps His promises, doesn't He? He is holy. I think it was Thomas Jefferson. This is off the top of my head, so I don't know if I have it perfect. But Thomas Jefferson wrote that he said something to the effect that uh, he fears for his nation when he realizes that God's justice is not going to sleep forever. That was 200 years ago. When you say that God is holy, when I say that God is holy, it means that he's separated from sin. That's a technical definition we apply to it. He's separated from sin. The reality is he cannot tolerate sin. The reality is, he cannot let it go unpunished. And these are very powerful words, but look at verse 5. Look at it. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven. How high is that? Think of that graphically. Put it in your head. Her sins have piled up as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Wow! That ought to make us stunned, just to read that phrase. But there's something else that, I, I wrote it down in my notes, you know, I, I said, this is powerful. You know, you can punch somebody and knock the wind out of them with this one. You read that verse. 
And then this morning, as I like to do, I sit walk through my notes one more time and think them through and stuff. And when I read that, the sweetest thoughts came to my heart. Thoughts that I want to show you for a minute. They're, they weren't printed originally, so I wrote them at the bottom of the page. Go back to Psalm 103 for a minute. Psalm 103. It's a long ways back there, isn't it? I'm still not there. You're probably there already. Psalm 103. Look at these words. Look at these sweet words. I'm going to go right to uh, verse number 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Here's a picture of his wrath in chapter 18, verse 5, based on sins piled up to heaven. Here in Psalm 103, his mercy, that you know, that I know. Is that not sweet to know the Lord? Those same stacks have been removed, and instead we look back and see what's piled up to heaven. What is it? His loving kindness toward those who fear him. Verse 11, circle that one. How beautiful that is to read. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. I said, what a precious verse that is. And then I started exploring some more, and I said, well, give me something else. And so I went to Isaiah, chapter 38, and verse number 17. Isaiah 38, 17 Beautiful. Yeah, right here. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. Wait, is that right? Who wrote that? 18? Yes. 17. No, I'm right. Okay. Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who have kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sin behind your back. These folks in Revelation 18, God remembered their iniquity. Here it says, He's cast it behind His back. Aren't you glad that you have the mercy of the Lord in your life? And I said, give me more. And I went to Micah. Micah chapter number 7. This one's a little harder to find. You've got to go to the minor prophets. Joel, Jonah, Obadiah. Once you get past Jonah, you get to Micah. It's real soon there. Chapter number 7. This one's verse number 19. I'm trying to read my own writing. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes. 
You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Is that not a precious verse to those who know mercy? I add one more because I was on a roll thinking of this and I thought, Lord, you're so wonderful to us. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. I would say if there's one passage you really ought to memorize, if I could require it, I would. Chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. These are good ones to keep in your heart. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which he, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Aren't you glad you know mercy? You read these words that we read of in this passage today, and my first impression was, man, are those hard. And then I stopped and I said, But if I want to think about my God and what He's done for me, I can't help but rejoice. I can't help but rejoice. How merciful is our God toward us. How beautiful, how wonderful is mercy. You and I know it as believers in Christ. We're reading a passage in Revelation that they do not know the Lord and they have turned their back from Him and refused to repent. Remember? Over and over and over and over again, it said. And God says, and your sins have piled up all the way to the heavens. And I remember your iniquity. I say, wow, I'm glad I'm not them. I'm glad I'm not them. He even adds this in chapter 18, verse 6. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give her back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To that same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Two things to note. The mention, she will be burned up with fire. Did we see that before? Chapter 17? Go back to that, verse number 16. And the ten horns which you Saw and the beast, these have, these hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. There's another similarity between the two. So we note that. We know her judgment is coming. But God is the one who does it. God is the one controlling these things. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, there are several ways, if you want to do this study, to understand the power of God. 
You could use the Greek words. There's four or five or six different words you could throw out there and say, this describes the power of God. There's a word that talks about his ability. We generally call it dunamis in a noun form, and we equate that with dynamite, and generally that blows things up. And then what do you got? you got a hole or something's all torn up. But the word actually is talking about his ability to do something, and it's used a lot in Scripture. And I like to talk about what God can do. There's a power of activity as well. Energia is a Greek word, which you probably can guess the English equivalent. It's energy. It's what he is doing right now, his energy in action. We could talk about his power in history. We could go back over the books. We could go back over the events. We could say, this is what he has done. And there's words for that too. But here, here in this passage, I said, what do you mean by strong? Which word are you using here? It's actually another one. And it talks about a power possessed, whether it's used or not. Now let me explain this to you because I think it's interesting. You come around the corner wherever you are, just imagine something. You walk around a corner, and you're face-to-face with a very ugly, mean-looking dog. It's wagging its tail. Is that a good sign? Even though it's ugly. It's wagging its tail. You say, that's a good thing. It's not wagging its tail. Is that a good sign? You don't know. It's barking at you. Is that a good sign? Uh, depends. It's growling at you. Is that a good sign? No, it's getting worse. Let me ask you this. It is absolutely silent. Is that a good sign? Not a, for a trained watchdog. They're trained to be silent. Those are the most dangerous kind. This dog is absolutely silent, staring you in the face. It has power possessed that it can unleash. And there's something about that that makes us a little more concerned about something that we don't understand fully. There's a mystery to it. There's something else to it. And you know it's big, but it's not happening yet. This is this word for strong. Our God is strong. And that's the word used. What he possesses. See, some people are very unconcerned about sin, and some people think that God is very unconcerned about sin. They act as if God doesn't care. That dishing out punishment is something that he really doesn't want to do. Some think that maybe he's a little soft on sin, and maybe he's unconcerned about sin, and the world actually mocks. The fact, Second Peter 3 says, they mock the fact that he's done nothing about it. Which is kind of funny to me. If you really read the passage, they said, where is the promise of his coming? What they're saying is, oh, he said he's going to punish us. Well, he's never showed up, has he? That's a pretty bold statement to make, isn't it? They say that, well, God must not care. But here we read in chapter 18, verse 8, the Lord God, who judges her, is strong. Never confuse his patience as a weakness for sin. Why is he patient? Why is he patient right now? 
Do you not know it's for you? Do you not know it's for that next person who needs to know the Lord Christ as Savior? He's waiting. He's waiting. He's patient toward us, not willing that we should perish, but that we should come to repentance. He's waiting. He's waiting. Here is one way we see him in his strength. We saw in chapter 17, God uses the kings of the earth to destroy this Babylon. Verse 13, we saw it. Chapter 17, these ones have one purpose, it said, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And verse 17 tells you what that purpose is. For God has put it in their heart to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God will be fulfilled. And I read this just previously in verse 16 of chapter 17. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast... These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What have you just seen? Both chapters talking about the same thing. She will be destroyed by fire and that's God's plan. He uses the the folks of this world to accomplish his purpose. But that's his plan. One more point of similarity. Look at the last words of chapter 18. The very last verse, verse number 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. You remember that from chapter 17? Go back and see it in verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. There's other little characteristics I could point out as we go between chapter 17 and 18, but my point today is that the woman described in chapter 17 is the Babylon described in chapter 18. I think it's unnecessary to divide the two chapters and talk about a false church when it doesn't talk about religion and compare it with a commercial thing in chapter 18 when I think it's all one big picture. It's the same thing. That's the way I see it anyway. And as I walk through this, this thing called Babylon is going to be destroyed in God's plan during the tribulation period. I think that's quite clear. And I see... From chapter 18, it will have an incredible impact on the world system of economics and what they call their way of life. First of all, note this, and this is just to sum up a couple of things that will happen. In chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, and the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth will lament her loss. Which is interesting. The kings of the earth participated in her sins. The kings of the earth were gathered together to assist the beast in killing her. And the kings of the earth will lament over it. Does it sound like they have something wrong upstairs? This is really strange. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensually with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. It's going to disrupt them and what they see. The second group that's going to be hurt are the merchants. 
It says in verse 11 through verse 17, the merchants of the earth will lament her loss. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys her cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stone and pearls. What was she wearing? Gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linens and purple and silk and scarlet. Doesn't that still match with her? Every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume. I'm going to miss the cinnamon, won't you? No, we won't be there. Anyway, uh, frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and, wait a minute, slaves and human lives? I thought we solved that social problem. Okay. The fruit that you long for has gone from you. All the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Sounds like it's going to be a drastic just an incredible event that's going to stun them. They're going to stand at a distance and see the smoke rise. I've never really been in a scene quite like that. There's another friend of mine who's posting on Facebook every day, lives in California, and one of those wildfires was whipping right up on the verge of their city where he lived. He shows pictures where you see the smoke right outside there. And they've been praying desperately about that. He's a pastor of a church there. And overnight, the fire died down. So, that's a relief, answer to prayer. But nevertheless, just to see the images of smoke rising on the horizon, coming your direction. Here these folks, you get the graphic view of this. They, they, they see the smoke and they say, oh, it's destroyed, it's destroyed. This is the merchant's the sailors will lament her loss too. Start in verse 17 through 19. Every shipmaster, every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance. They were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which... All who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. You've got the picture, right? Pretty, pretty bleak. Pretty bleak. But there's a fourth group that's got a comment. There in verse 20, the saints will rejoice at her loss. Look at it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. It has been the plea of the saints of God from the very beginning that the throne of God should punish sin. 
How far back do you need to go before that chorus started being sung? I'll take you back to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. You'll find it in Genesis 4, verse 10, when he says, What have you done? God is speaking. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Let me take you back to the days of Jesus. When Jesus stands over the city of Jerusalem just before his crucifixion, days before, and he stands and looks out over that great city, and he says these words in Matthew 23, verse number 34 and 35. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. That blood has been crying out for a long time. Let me add one of the other real, bold, and audacious statements of the people who stood there when they were calling for Jesus to be crucified. I want to read you those words. It's just a stunning statement that they made. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather there was a riot that was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And the people responded in Matthew 27. These are the words in verse 25. All the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Does that not stun you to hear? In Revelation 6, there's another chorus of it going up. The Lamb broke the fifth seal, it said in verse number 9. And I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice. Then they were saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That chorus has been going on a long time. And it's not that God is deaf. There's a moment for it. And you're reading it right now in Revelation 18. I believe every righteous person on this planet must realize that this world deserves judgment. It does, doesn't it? I know I'd like it to be postponed. I, I pray that the Lord is merciful. I ask Him to give us another day that we might be able to get out with that message to talk about how great is mercy and what Christ has done for us. We have the opportunity. We have that privilege. But the fact is, He is a holy God. He is a holy God. And you're reading what He's going to do someday. But I want to show you something. What I just read to you in that passage, go back to it. Uh, verse number 20. Because God, right in the middle, God has pronounced judgments. Judgment. What's the next two words? In the New American Standard it says, for you. For you. For you. Against her. For you. 
against her. She has not been deaf to the call. The judgment is coming because they did this to you. It's talking to the multitude that has been slain. The final verdict, verse 21 through 24. Then a strong angel took a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sounds of the harpist and the musician and the flute players and the trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. The sound of the mill will not be heard in you any longer. The light of the lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were of the great men of the earth because of the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. She will be judged. She will be judged. It's stunning to read, isn't it? It's stunning to read. I told you already, chapter 19 gets better. (laughs) I love chapter 19. I've been waiting for chapter 19. I could have jumped from chapter 3 to 19 and been happy. That's coming. But there's something very important I set before you. As I've been doing this regularly, so you understand this, this book was written for the church. It was written for the church. Even though our experience is not the same as those that we've been reading about who's gone through the tribulation period. I believe it was written so that we have confidence that our God is sovereign. That we have the assurance that God is in control. That we can be absolutely convinced that God is trustworthy and He keeps His promises and He is holy. And that's the God you know. That's the God you serve. That's the God you love. Aren't you glad He's consistent in His character? You're getting a glimpse of all these things. Because when we read the chapters of these books, we come to the fact that Jesus said at the end, I'm coming quickly. And blessed is He who heeds. I told you last week, not reads, but heeds. Heeds. The words of the prophecy of this book. It's a blessing, not just to read, but to heed it, to give attention to it, to take notice of it, to to mark it in your mind and consider and regard and observe and bear it in mind and take it to heart. And folks, if you take it to heart, you know this world needs this message. Because if the Lord should come for us today, guess what happens real soon? These things. And there's a lot of people on this earth who will go through these things because they don't know Him. Who knows Him? We do. If nothing else, this book can prompt evangelism, can't it? Remember, our study is not to satisfy curiosity. It's to instigate a reaction. When Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, we should stand up and say, Then we better get busy. We better get busy. If he's coming quickly, I want that to get my attention. I want that to get my notice. I want to live today like this is when he said he's coming. What about you? What about you?
You read these things, you rejoice with me that mercy is ours, and this is not our story. This is not our final line, is it? This is not the chapter waiting for us. But we have a God who is true. And we can rejoice that God would keep his word. And we could rejoice that God is merciful to us. And we could rejoice that chapter 19 and on is going to be a glorious thing to talk about. But we got work today, today. Don't we? Work today. We got things to do. We got things to do. Heavenly Father, your word's in front of us and it is powerful. It is powerful. When we see that you are holy and you will, you will, you will perform your, your judgments on this earth. We are called in our place to do our part. One way or the other to represent Christ. To be a light in a very dark world. To be a voice. To be a hand that reaches out. To be feet that walk. To be everything or anything you want us to be. Just your servants. Just tools in your hand. Just those who are willing to be used by our Lord wherever you take us to share this Beautiful gospel we know. Thank you for loving us and sending your Son. Thank you for saving us from the wrath to come. Thank you for the hope that is set before us. May it so impact us today that we have to share it with somebody. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.